Hello, and welcome to The Better's Verdict, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on gambling law. This podcast focuses on unwinding the tangled web of U.S. gambling laws past and present, telling the stories of the people affected by the sometimes impenetrable and often changing landscape, and providing insight on what's to come next. I'm your host, Stephen Jacobs, a New York-based lawyer at the international law firm Herbert Smith Freehills. On today's episode, we will explore the inexplicable laws of sports betting in the United States. Tens of millions of Americans enjoy betting on their favorite teams, but until recently, and largely due to fierce opposition from collegiate and professional sports leagues, very few Americans could actually do so legally. Bookmakers on the edge of the law stepped in to fill the void to allow folks all across the country to place their bets, but it was underground. Now, in the wake of mass legalization, this is a sector undergoing rapid and extreme development. This is the law of sports betting in the United States. And I'm extremely excited to have with me today Professor Mark Conrad. He's an expert on sports law and sports gambling law, and he teaches these subjects and others at the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham University and directs the sports business program there. I'll add on a personal note, he's my former professor. Professor Mark Conrad, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's talk about the old days, the good old days, as some people say. What was happening with sports and uh, laws against sports in the 1950s, 1960s? Well, there was clearly a lot of illegal sports betting going on because legalized sports betting did not exist except uh, in one state, which was Nevada. But they, uh, aside from that, it was basically illegal and basically under state law. So the federal government did not get involved in sports betting until the 1960s, but they passed a series of laws that really um, tightened the uh, prohibitions on sports betting, either from um, transfers by wire, which was telephone, or more recent than that, basically by banning states outright from even enacting laws that would legalize sports betting. The reasons for this was one was social because gambling was considered a vice and a bad thing. And in conjunction with that was number two, there was a series of pretty major betting scandals or point shaving scandals that rocked sports, especially college sports in the early 1950s and periodically since then. And certainly New York City was greatly affected by that because of the um, betting that was going on illegally in college basketball games that was based on point shaving. It really basically ruined college basketball as a viable major sport in New York for a generation. Uh, it was a so-called city college scandal, but it was not just players from city college. Uh, there were players from other schools as well that were implicated in point shaving. I do want to uh, emphasize that since I'm a graduate of City College and don't want my alma mater unfairly smeared as the only place where this happened. Let's hold yeah. off on PASPA for now because I want to talk about point shaving for one second. I guess first we should explain what it is. All right. Well, point shaving is a technique where you are not paid by anybody, a gambler or whoever, to lose a game but you're paid to win by an amount below the estimate. To cover, to cover right. the spread, even if you're not going to necessarily win or lose. Correct. And what happened was newspapers started printing the spreads, really in the 1940s. So it was an invitation for people to bet on games because the newspaper would say, you know, so-and-so is an eight-point favorite, 
over another school, which means that the favorite school had to win by at least that amount to win the bet. And it was the only way to make it a fair bet because if it didn't have point shaving, you bet on the sure thing and most of the time you'd win. Uh, that's the reason why they even created this kind of handicap known as the point spread. But what was morally and ethically the issue was players would be told, no, we don't want you to lose the game, but we don't want you to win by too much. Where they could still bring their team to victory, but also make good with the mob, so to speak, by not winning by too much. Correct. Correct. And But it was attractive. Like, we're not losing the game. We would never lose for the team. But we don't want to win by too much. And given the fact that college athletes then and now are not paid, so getting $100, $200, $300 per game was real money in 1950. And certainly it was attractive, at least to some students uh, on these teams playing. And ultimately what you had was a situation where if you're a good gambler, you know, good monster gambler type, you can actually profit very well by paying relatively small amounts and then betting five or $10,000 on the game. And you transfer that to really a short thing, you know, whether you bet, you know, you bet on the underdog, but yet you have paid off the players on the favorite team you may get a pretty much a guaranteed payout. So Congress was, of course, concerned about this. On the last episode, we spoke about the Wire Act. Well, I spoke with a a different guest about the Wire Act, which was enacted in the early 1960s. Um, We had some discussion on the last episode about whether that applied to online poker. But I think there's pretty much no doubt that it did act to prohibit bets that were transmitted in interstate commerce on sports gambling. Uh, So that was maybe the first major piece of federal legislation here, and it still exists. That's correct. So shortly thereafter, though, as you said, sports betting was still happening all over the place. So it wasn't doing much to tamp it down. It just pushed it into the shadows. In fact, I have a quote from a commission that Congress enlisted to study this. In 1976, they said, quote, gambling is inevitable. No matter what is said or done by advocates or opponents of gambling in all its various forms, it's an activity that is practiced or tacitly endorsed by a substantial majority of Americans. So this was pretty strongly anti-Wire Act. And we moved toward the 1980s. And as a result of the Wire Act and also public policy, very few states had, had sports betting legalized. So in 1989, Oregon established what was called a sports action lottery, which permitted parlay bets, but not individual game bets on NFL and NBA games. This is a very fine distinction where a parlay is you pay a small amount, you pick, say, three games or four games or five games, and if you get them all right, you win an outsized payout. But if you get even one of them wrong, you lose the whole bet. It's actually more of a long shot than betting on an individual game. And the reason that these were favored by some states at the time is they were seen more like lotteries than actual individual game bets because you paid a small amount, you picked three, five, or even 12 games. And if you get them all right, you get a lottery-like windfall. So the sports leagues, true to form throughout time, didn't like this. David Stern, who was the commissioner of the NBA at the time, said, quote, 
the NBA is extremely disappointed at the Lottery Commission's decision because we believe that the decision of the Lottery Commission poses a serious threat to the well-being of the NBA. It is an improper invasion of our rights and violates the law. We've been left with no choice but to seek to protect our interests through the courts, and we anticipate commencing litigation in the very near future. This was 1989. And sure enough, several years later, in 1992, Congress enacted what is called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, uh, PASPA. Can you tell us about PASPA? Sure. I mean, the real advocate for PASPA was Senator Bill Bradley, the former uh, NBA player who played for the Knicks. And being that you had a former uh, player and you know, for a professional team who also was very much anti-gambling, there was clearly influence in that direction toward a federal law that would ban sports betting to prevent states from trying to get into this because of what was happening, not just in Oregon, but there were other few other states that had these quasi-lotteries in existence. And I think the fear was that you didn't want other states to do it. So PASPA basically commanded states not to enact laws that legalize sports betting. And the wording of PASPA was rather odd because it didn't say, well, you know what, we are going to have a nationwide ban through Congress of all sports betting, which they could do under the Commerce Clause. But they basically phrased it in the way it was drafted, uh, was phrased to say, you know what, states, we're not letting you get into an area that you traditionally regulated under health and safety, under the Tenth Amendment police powers. So it was kind of an odd way to draft the statute. But at the time, there really weren't that many constitutional yellow flags that were flown. And the law was enacted and became good law. No, no, I mean, good law, I mean, it was unconstitutionally challenged. It, it was not challenged, um, although right, it, it right. perhaps In was that, bizarre yeah. that it allowed some some states to have these parlays be legal and it grandfathered them in. And, but right, but else, they almost had to do that. Why did they have to do that? Well, I think they had to do that because those states would have challenged. Uh, so they, they possibly they, would have brought a case. They wanted to just get this through with the minimum of resistance. Sure, exactly. And what about the representatives of those states that could object to it? You know, that's the other thing. You have representatives from those four states that were exempted from the law from what they had legal at that time. So clearly, I think they just want to say, okay, you have these relatively minor lotteries and you have Nevada and that's it. So it really was a prospective law. In Nevada, of course, for a long time now, you could go into any casino and bet on pretty much anything. And the reason is because it had sports gambling legal before 1992, before PASPA, right? Correct. So they were grandfathered in. But as you can imagine, right. some of the other states that wanted to have sports gambling to maybe get the tax revenue or for other reasons weren't thrilled with this. In in 2009, Delaware tried to enact a law legalizing sports betting there. They were one of the few states that had these sort of parlay bets grandfathered in, but where you couldn't make a single game bet, this absolutely bizarre result. And the Third Circuit quickly struck down that, their law, but the governor angrily wrote to um, the NFL commissioner who supported the government in, in challenging Delaware's legalization and said, the NFL negotiates contracts with all of the principal broadcast networks, and those contracts generate billions of dollars in revenue. 
Each of these companies owns and operates websites that provide betting lines, which are viewed by bettors in every state of the nation, regardless of whether they can legally wager on the games. So in short, the notion that the NFL has aggressively and actively fought against betting on its games is belied by the very programming the NFL indirectly endorses and from which it handsomely profits. Do you think that's true, that the NFL and the other sports leagues were benefiting even though they were fighting wagering? Well, maybe indirectly they were because they'd be more eyeballs, but they would not admit it. And they certainly wouldn't want legal gambling at the time because they were spooked about the corruption that could result in the way the sport is played. That is one of those really cardinal sins when you're talking about basically corruption within the sport. Basically, the integrity of the sport is tarnished by this kind of activity. So it's a really a reputational issue to protecting the reputation of the sport. And the argument was you then you legalize sports betting while you open the door to potentially more of this. That was at least an argument that was made. And why do we really want to align with that? Given our history, you know, given uh, just about any uh, baseball, you know, basketball uh, professional and college and basketball has a sordid history of scandals involving betting. So they wanted to take the clear approach. Uh, many, many Americans at the time were more hostile to gambling as a vice. So it made political sense. It also made, I guess, reputational capital sense at that time. But things have obviously changed since then. Around that same time, I think we had um, the Tim Donahue scandal in the NBA, which related directly to betting on games, which is maybe another angle that the leagues were concerned about, although that, that's an extreme case. Right, but it was a case. I mean, clearly, and I remember David Stern's press conference, as angry as I've ever seen him publicly regarding this issue, because, again, if the integrity of the sport is tarnished, people are not going to watch it. It'll have a bad image, and that's when you can lose a lot of money. Uh, the monetization is affected, and it takes sometimes a long time to get back that loss. If that happens, at least that's where their argument would be. But as I said, you know, the landscape changed and changed pretty dramatically. And to go into that, you know, states wanted to get more revenue opportunities. Given that, they wanted to increase potentially some tourism. And the idea that gambling was such a vice seemed to ease because most states have lotteries. Uh, people started going to Atlantic City, and certainly Las Vegas has been around, you know, for decades, and it's a big tourist spot along the, with Reno and a few other locations in Nevada too. So they said, you know what? This may be an interesting idea to rethink this. And Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey at the time was the first to do it and mm -hmm. said, you know what? To help Atlantic City. We want to have sports betting there in the casinos because Atlantic City never really developed into the real competitor of, say, Las Vegas East for a lot of reasons. So <laughs> they said, let's try this. And ultimately, I do think, you know, Christie, being a lawyer and a former U.S. attorney, was well aware of PASPA, well aware of the Wire Act, but said, let's take a chance as a politician. And a law was passed. And no surprise, the leagues, the NCAA, challenge it. And then the Justice Department came in as well as a violation of PASPA. And there were two court decisions in that saga and basically said, you know what? Sorry, New Jersey. Basically, PASPA preempts inconsistent state law. 
you know, basic constitutional law 101. Sorry about that. But in one of those decisions, the judge gave a hint and said, you know what, New Jersey, looking at the text of PASPA, if you make a law, not so much legalizing sports betting, but just deregulating it, you know what, maybe, maybe there's a shot. Hmm. And they got the hint. So in the case of PASPA, it's the way the law was made. And the law commanded states not to enact laws legalizing sports betting. So New Jersey then comes up with a law basically deregulating it and saying, we have nothing to do with this. And, you know, certain locations, if they so want, can engage in sports betting. They said everywhere in New Jersey, you can sports bet now because every restriction we have, we're just taking away. Correct. That's right. They basically went the other way. And it was a really cute idea. And most of us thought it's an acute idea to circumvent PASPA and it's preempted. And that's what happened in the trial court. That's what happened in the Third Circuit with dissent. It was a two to one opinion. And then went on bunk. Preempted. Well, basically meaning that uh, the federal statute, if you have an inconsistent state law and federal law, the federal law takes precedence. That's basically what it is. If there is a dispute. So if a state law says A and a federal statute says B, the federal statute is going to nullify and affect the state law because federal law is considered more supreme, if you will, than inconsistent state law. But this was a cheeky attempt by New Jersey to say, well, we're not preempted because we're not passing a law. We're just repealing restrictions. We're repealing laws. You don't need permission from the state to brush your teeth, and you don't need permission from the state to bet on sports. Right. But it was a cheeky attempt, but the attempt ultimately won. So maybe not so cheeky. (laughs) Because ultimately, by the time it went to the Supreme Court, and by the way, it's really fascinating because the case went to the Third Circuit in a two-to-one opinion, then went to an en banc hearing, which was really unusual in the Third Circuit. You don't get a lot of them. That's when the entire panel said. The whole Third Circuit looked at it, right? The whole Third Circuit. Everybody there. And fun fact, trivia fact, one of the judges on the Third Circuit is one Miriam Trumberry, the sister of the former president. Who is uh, was I think she's retired now uh, a judge on the um, on that circuit by the way nominated by President Clinton another trivia question so anyway so that's your trivia for the day so anyway but back to it it goes to the Supreme Court and then it's morphed into a very archaic constitutional question and the question really is can the federal government command states not to do something or do something it's called commandeering doctrine and honestly when I was in law school. Never heard of it. Commandeering began to sort of percolate in the 1990s with a couple of cases saying that, you know, yes, of course, the federal government can regulate certain aspects of the economy through the commerce power, but can't quite tell states what they can and cannot do in a simple way. So the case really wasn't a gambling case by the time it got to the Supreme Court. It was a constitutional law case. And in a somewhat split series of opinions, Ultimately, the court ruled with a pretty broad majority uh, that indeed PASPA was unconstitutional under this commandeering doctrine. And I think many a betting company and better will circle May, you know, um, of that year, 2018, I believe, uh, when the court made its ruling that opened the door because now it says this law is nullified. 
unless Congress passes a law banning sports betting phrased differently soon, it's up to the states. And it's been a free for all since then because New Jersey had its statute pretty much written in anticipation of the anticipation of the decision. And so did uh, West Virginia. They were assuming they were going to win before the courts and they wanted to get the gambling right out there as quickly as possible. Exactly. I want to stay with this for a second because this is really interesting, especially because there's some tension or at least seeming tension between the two doctrines you just spoke about. On the one hand, there's preemption, where if there's an inconsistent federal law and state law, the federal law preempts. On the other hand, there's this anti-commandeering principle, which withholds from Congress power to issue orders directly to the states. There's some really great quotes from the Supreme Court case. I believe Justice Alito wrote the opinion. He said, for example, where a federal interest is sufficiently strong to cause Congress to legislate, it must do so directly. It may not conscript state governments as its agents. It says about PASPA, Justice Alito goes on, it's as if federal officers were installed in state legislative chambers and were armed with the authority to stop legislators from voting on any offending proposals. A more direct affront to state sovereignty is not easy to imagine. So this wasn't really about the Supreme Court wanting to legalize sports gambling. It was just them saying, we don't like that you're telling the states, you're putting federal officers in state legislative houses and telling them not to do something. Exactly. That's right. It's a constitutional law case, not a gambling case. The effect of it is opening up a new industry to states. In effect, it's also a new industry for sports to monetize. But the ruling itself is kind of an arcane constitutional ruling that unless you're really into that sort of thing, you really wonder exactly what is the fine line between them, because most uh, observers did not think the Supreme Court would take this case, and most observers thought it was a preemption case, which is what I thought. I said, they got to be kidding me. You know, especially as you said, the second New Jersey law was a cute way to get around the infirmities of the first law and said, look, look, nice idea. You know, you give an A for effort, but you know where this is going to go. And the ideal way, I guess, legislatively is have Congress repeal PASPA and leave it to the states, which could have happened, but it would have happened in a lot longer time frame. And you have to go through the legislative process and draft the statute. The Supreme Court did the betting industry a favor. And in many ways, it did the sports industry a favor because the ramifications of legalized sports betting is actually significant, coupled with technological changes and biometric data issues to create a very vibrant industry and a vibrant compliance industry as well. Because one of the situations you have is that states have different rules, different requirements, different standards different definitions of what gambling is. So boy, I think for lawyers, you know, this is a ch- area chock full of opportunities. It, it creates all sorts of openings. And it's interesting that you, you should reference the sports leagues. I read a quote from David Stern earlier that was just vehement that what Oregon did when it passed the sports action lottery in 1989 was going to destroy the league and, and all that. In 2014, while these um, Christie cases were going on and before the Supreme Court case striking down PASPA happened, Adam Silver, who was the new commissioner of the NBA and David Stern's protege, according to some, came out and said, 
Betting on professional sports is currently illegal in most of the United States outside of Nevada. I believe we need a different approach. I believe that sports betting should be brought out of the underground and into the sunlight where it can be appropriately monitored and regulated. This is quite the stark turn from a sports league. This was a watershed moment. That op-ed piece in the Times that he wrote was really a major shift and it got people to think. Uh, even before the Supreme Court, as I said, maybe Congress would have eventually repealed PASPA, even if it was constitutional. But the fact that a major league was beginning to think out of the box and say, look, this is something that has happened. Let's legalize it. Let's regulate it. And between the lines, let's monetize it. Because there could be an awful lot of money for the leagues and teams as well uh, as for the betting industry and maybe some money for the states. Doesn't it beg the question of what happened to these point-shaving concerns from the 1950s? Don't they still exist? Well, one big difference, to be fair, at least on the professional level, athletes are paid rather well. They're paid richly, you know, generously, if some people would say. <laughs> so if the average NBA player is making four mil, five mil a season, why would that player even consider taking money from a gambler to shave points. It would make no sense. I think on the issue of college sports, it certainly would remain a concern. And that's why the NCAA has been more reticent than the pro leagues on this issue. But right now, the professional athletes are wealthy enough, at least in the major leagues, not to have this problem. So that's, I think, one big difference. So the Supreme Court opinion that struck down past but closed with the legalization of sports gambling requires an important policy choice, but the choice is not ours to make. Congress can regulate sports gambling directly, but if it elects not to do so, each state is free to act on its own. So you, you started saying, this is what's happening now, right? States are acting on their own, and what's happening out there? Well, they're starting to act on their own, and about 20-plus states have some kind of betting regimen within their state. They vary greatly in some respects, everything from whether mobile betting is allowed or not, whether locations of betting are anywhere or just in casinos, or what are the license fees you know, for betting companies to operate in the state can vary greatly. And finally, the taxes, you know, how much you pay taxes on your winnings can vary greatly between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It's a huge difference. I think New Jersey was something like maybe 13% and Pennsylvania was like 30%. So you have a lot of differences and you also have the differences in who regulates sports betting. Now we'll say that something like um, the Nevada Sports Gaming Commission has a lot of experience in dealing with it, but does say West Virginia's equivalent have that experience? We don't know. You know, and you need a bunch of regulators to set policy because most of these laws are going to be very general. But as far as the rules for franchises, that's usually done by the agency. You know, how payments are made, that's usually done by the agency. Tax collections, you know, the nitty gritty of regulating this is actually a very difficult thing. And given that we've come up with this kind of puzzle-like structure in this country, you're going to have to have people that really know what they're doing dealing with this particular uh, industry. So this is like we're in the Internet age circa 1996, where there's this massive new technology out there. 
not that sports betting is new, but it's new to the regulators. And anything can happen from here. Well, the one difference is the Internet was very mildly regulated because the Internet had free speech issues. So, you know, states and those states did try to regulate the Internet in some ways, but generally was struck down because of that constitutional issue, which I don't think you have in gambling, because certainly it's the province of the states to enact uh, laws regarding health and safety. And gambling really would be within that purview. So I think with gambling, it's actually more difficult than the early days of the Internet, because just about every state that legalizes sports betting has to find a regulatory regimen to deal with it. So there is a great deal of work to do here. What are some other trends you're seeing out there with sports betting and sports gambling that maybe we haven't thought of? Well, I'm going to talk about in the last portion, you know, athlete biometric data, which is becoming a term used more and more. Because now coaches, general managers, you know, want performance data on the athletes they pay lots of money for, or maybe athletes they don't pay lots of money for. And now we have the wearable technology that can do this, everything from heart rate, blood pressure, other aspects when breathing, you know, all sorts of things. And many of you maybe who are uh, amateur runners see some of this stuff when you go to running events. Uh, it's for individuals as well as, you know, professional athletes, uh, individual uh, amateurs, I should say. But it also has another value, and that's monetary. Because if you are a gambler, you want to have as much data as, as possible. You want to know the condition of the players. You want to know how healthy one is. And there's lots and lots of data out there. The question is, can the leagues, can the teams monetize that? Can the athletes monetize that? Uh, are there privacy issues? Are there HIPAA issues? And that's really up in the air because we have no federal laws. Well, HIPAA is, I, I admit, but it may not directly apply. But the states have different privacy laws. So we have the same problem as we do with gambling. California and Illinois have some of the strictest laws regarding uh, athlete biometric data in general about when it could be used, when it cannot be used. Illinois allows private rights of action for damages. Other states don't. California has a broader privacy view than most states. And it's really up in the air because unless you get the athlete's consent, uh, it's a real open question whether you can use this stuff. But some of the leagues and teams and the athletes' unions have agreed to it you know, for payment that these items can be used. And betting companies would love this. You know, bettors would love this information because it gives them a better choice. Well, doesn't so, it give an edge uh, to people that have it as opposed to people that don't? Doesn't that create sort of an unfair competition issue? But the whole point is that you can get it. You know, if the athlete, if it's sold to an entity then or from the league it. or it's official data, yeah, you can get it. Exactly. So that's not the problem. The problem is how much money will be paid for it and how private is the data. On the I college level, I see some real issues with that because, of course, student-athletes have no rights. And I think any college that would try to pull that off, and I think a few may have tried to, got you know, severe public reaction uh, to do it because college coaches are also you know, using biometric data for their student-athletes as well, especially from the elite schools, elite teams. So that's where you're going to see the future. And unless Congress deals with that nationwide, you may have another free-for-all. Do you see a future where people might be betting on, for example, whether LeBron's heart rate will exceed a certain level during a game or whether some player will work hard enough or run enough miles during a game? Is that something that could come to pass? 
sky's the limit as long as it's legal and some betting firm wants to do that. You know, you just look at the kind of betting you see in England. I mean, you can bet about just about anything. So it's possible as long as it's legal within the state or regulated. It can be. The only question would be, again, the privacy question of what is released. But if the athlete agrees to release it or the team or the league, uh, would the athletes union say, yeah, sure. It's interesting you should raise London. When you walk around the streets of London, you see a bookmaking parlor, a legal betting parlor, pretty much every block. That, of course, bears no resemblance to the United States. In the wake of PASPA being struck down by the Supreme Court, do you foresee the United States looking like that? I don't, because it's too expensive. I think in terms of just having each parlor there, having to deal with the monetary issues, reporting to the regulators, I think the U.S. is just too big for that. I just think it's going to be much more online, much more affiliated with sports leagues. The big companies are going to take control like MGM, DraftKings, and many, many others. I don't really see a neighborhood place because either I see it in a big gambling type center or more and more, if you could do it on your phone, why would you even go out to a place like an off-track betting-ish kind of place? Yeah, that's a great point. And maybe that will spell the doom for these places in Europe as well. Once everybody is betting on their phone, which is becoming legalized in more and more states, although, as you pointed out, not all states with legal betting let you bet on the phone, which seems like a distinction without a difference to me. Well, yes and no, because at least in a a brick and mortar place, there could be some restrictions. The big difference is what if your 16 year old takes your phone and your accountant wants to bet? Mm, It's a little bit hard to track that. Yeah. And that is a concern. Thinking about where it's going from here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we'll see. In five years, who knows? Mm. And note that betting has increased during COVID as well uh, in many, many states. I mean, the amounts of bets going on, even in states that were not considered major hubs, uh, has increased. So in that industry, and imagine betting on esports, another industry that certainly has done very well in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, it can be really interesting. Yeah, that, that's a whole new can of worms. Professor Mark Conrad, thank you so much for joining me. Where can folks find you if they want to reach you? My Twitter is sportslaw1, number one, sportslaw1, no space. Or you can email me if you have any questions at conrad at Fordham, E-D-U, C-O-N-R-A-D, at F-O-R-D-H-A-M dot E-D-U. Uh, happy to answer any questions. Uh, and certainly, if you want to follow me on Twitter, again, SportsLaw1, love to have more followers. Great. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Better's Verdict, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on gambling law. If you liked what you heard, please drop a five-star review on iTunes and hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have great new guests and discussions on each new episode, and we don't want you to miss one. As a reminder, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. If you'd like to learn more about sports law or have any questions, feel free to get in contact with Mark Conrad or with me, Stephen Jacobs. My email address is stephen.jacobs at hsf.com. Thanks again to Professor Mark Conrad. Until next time.